Hey guys, welcome to Cinemotif episode 2. Today we're going to be talking about villains throughout the decades and, and what makes a great villain and how they've changed and uh, kind of how I guess they've gotten worse through the years as as we've, we go to more modern times. We're, we're going to see that, I feel. But yeah, my name is Patrick Alaka. And I am Jason Konigsberg of PanandSlam.com. Yeah, so let's just get right into it. Jason, what do you think makes a great villain, first and foremost? What makes a great villain? There's a lot, but at the same time, there isn't that much. So uh, there's a few key ingredients. What makes a great villain? You care about Mm -hmm. them. A lot of times, the best villains are more interesting than the heroes. Yes. And sometimes they are even today, but they certainly used to be in, you know, some of the most memorable villains are. Uh, I think they're more critical to an action movie success, or once again, or at least they used to be. I'm thinking Die Hard, Speed, Training Day, The Dark Knight, some of the James Bond movies. Uh, and I think villains can tell us about our culture and where we are, where we were, and where we're headed. So, uh, and I also think something else that I really like about villains that really stands out for me, villains seem to have more fun. Alan Rickman in Die Hard, Tommy Lee Jones in Gary Busey in Under Siege, uh, Ben Kingsley in Sexy Beast, Malkovich in In the Line of Fire, Dennis Hopper and Willem Dafoe in practically every movie they ever made. Villains can be written with more freedom because they don't have to be likable or worry that the audience will or will not root for them. They can be as vile and, devi- and as devious as the actor or writer allows them to be. There's more freedom and less rules for being a villain. And I think enjoying being evil is the key to the most successful villains. With some of these evil characters, we actually want them to win. There are some villains you just hate and you want to see them die like John Lithgow and Cliffhanger or some villains that you just want to watch and you don't want the chase to end because they're having so much fun like Dennis Hopper and Speed. Villains have to have intelligence and make them believable that they could pull off these elaborate schemes. I think James Woods, Christopher Walken, and Alan Rickman all excelled at this. So that's, you know, intelligence, likability, and fun are what I think make the villains so memorable. Yeah, as I was going through, I totally agree. As I was going through the this list of like my favorite villains, I originally thought they had to be like very complex and everything, but as I was going through, I was like, no, there's people like, you know, the Terminator and the original Terminator like, you know, with Arnold Schwarzenegger as as yeah. Great example. Like he doesn't have a lot of personality. Um he's not uh you know he's he's not likable or you know he's not interesting he's he's just unfeeling and unstoppable and just extremely strong and that makes him scary and makes him mm-hmm. a great villain so he's mm-hmm. compelling i would say he's just arnold makes him so compelling and he drives the story yeah so it's so interesting that yeah you don't really need a lot to make a really compelling villain and yet it seems like modern directors and writers have trouble making any villain memorable i was thinking about all of the marvel movies which we'll go into when we get to the modern times Mm -hmm. but um Mm -hmm. i could only think i watched every single marvel movie i could only remember maybe three or four marvel villains like their names and like who they were off the top of my head isn't that sad that's really sad (laughs) so generic yeah (laughs) that's because there's like 19 or 20 something marvel movies in the marvel universe and I mean, 
And X-Men doesn't count because I was going to say Magneto is a pretty dynamic uh, right. Marvel mm-hmm. comic book movie. Because he's complex. He's a Holocaust survivor. You understand he's seen the worst of humanity and that's why he wants to kill humanity. So he his character is evil but sympathetic. You understand his plight. Yep. Yeah. Uh, and it's just, uh, yeah, it is definitely sad. I think it's partially due to just the superhero craze and just, the mm. you know, the studios rush to just churn out these these movies and they just don't care anymore. And, uh, yeah, that's just... It is really sad. Um, no, I mean, yeah. it, I, I mean, just skipping ahead to the 2000s, um, I feel like what the problem is with a lot of these villains is that it's assumed that these superheroes are going to have larger-than-life villains that they will defeat, but probably not kill. Right. You buy a ticket for Superman, you assume he's going to fight Lex Luthor. You assume Batman and the Joker are going to go at it, or Captain America and Red Skull, or whatever generic Marvel villain you know they decide is going to get the spotlight. We all know them. We all know the heroes before we go in to see the movie. We all know the villains before we go in to see the movie. Right. We know them. We can predict their every move. And I think the most obvious problem with today's villain is the lack of mystery mm-hmm. behind them. We know the Joker. Whether it's Joaquin Phoenix or Jack Nicholson or Heath Ledger, we've seen him, we know him. He's They can add their own twist and make it good, but he's still the Joker at the end of the day. Yes. And yeah, I think that um, as uh, as we go on with... Uh, well, well, we'll talk about more modern movies, but I do think that mm-hmm. there's like this desire to make them complex and more sympathetic. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you can make a great villain that way, but yeah, sometimes it does... Sometimes less is more, for sure. Exactly. Especially with a lot of the comic book movies. Mm -hmm. I mean, I feel like Heath Ledger's Joker maybe is the best Joker. And I think that's because there's so much mystery. We don't really know his backstory. We don't know... No one does, you know, in in that particular movie. And I think that's why he was so memorable. And to this day is still... You know, it's been 12, 13 years since that movie was made, and he's probably the last great, one of the last great memorable villains in movie history. Definitely. Mm-hmm. So let's go into the, the history. We'll definitely, I feel like we'll be trashing the early 2000s to late 2000s um, soon enough. But uh, yeah, who would you say, Jason, like, if you think about like just the earliest villain you could think of that's that's memorable, you know, back to even like the 1920s, if you need to go. Ooh, if we go back to the 1920s, uh, doesn't have to necessarily be. I'm just, I'm just saying, if we think about well, the early, early movie villains, I think you know, I, I was gonna say the first movie, the oldest movie that I remember seeing as a child and seeing the villain and be, him being unforgettable and but still liking him and rooting for him. He was a sympathetic character uh, with a lot of mystery. The Phantom from Phantom of the Opera, play, played by Lon Chaney. Mm-hmm. That's the first one that comes to mind if you're talking old, and I did happen to see it at a young age. Then, I mean, I guess you could also add Nosferatu in there and those early, you know, 30s monsters, you know, I guess eventually Dracula and Frankenstein's monster uh, coming to light. But that would be my first memory of the oldest villain I can remember that really made an impact on me was Lon Chaney and Phantom of the Opera. What about you? What would you say is the oldest villain that really impacted you? Yeah, I mean, off the top of my head, it would be the Wicked Witch of the West. 
And Ooh, uh, great answer. Yeah, and she, <laughs> that's a great answer. Yeah. I, I probably saw that. I definitely saw that before I saw Phantom of the Opera. So yeah, that's a terrific. Answer. And yet we're talking about uh, yeah, just right off the bat, we're talking about these characters that there isn't a lot to them. They are mysterious. You know their motivation, but you don't like really find out too much about who the Wicked Witch was. And you know, if mm-hmm. we look at um, what they did in modern Broadway with Wicked. Where they tried to or make Oz her... the Great and Powerful. Yeah. I don't know if you saw that, the Sam I, Raimi movie. Right, yeah. and I, I think both honestly kind of ruin. They ruined that. I think that as a kid, she was so terrifying because you didn't know what she was going to do. You knew that she had a sister that uh, Dorothy killed, and that she wanted mm-hmm. the ruby slippers, and that was that's all you needed. <laughs> you didn't need anything else. Yeah. You know, she just yeah, was terrifying. I think, yeah, you're absolutely right. And I was, I some notes that I did make to myself uh, prior to this was like the golden era of Hollywood movies did not give enough depth to movie villains. The witch was the witch. Her sister died. She wanted revenge. She wanted to kill Dorothy. Her job, her likeliness, her livelihood, everything was the witch. There was no boyfriend or good side or anything else to her the phantom was this hideous monster who wanted love and wanted you know this woman to love him but he had to hide because he was so ugly and hideous and afraid and society would shun him Mm kind of like frankenstein's monster so i feel like the golden era of hollywood movies did not give a lot to these villains to make them complex other than a few films off the top of my head the oldest movies i can think of where the villain was more than just a bad guy, you know, where he was a bank robber, a gangster, or a monster, uh, was Fritz Lang's M, about a serial killer, uh, the uh, Peter Lorre character. I still have to see Or that. James Cagney in The Public Enemy, mm-hmm. okay? Oh, yeah, Those great. are the oldest t- two movies I can think of. And then, after that's like the 30s, and then by the 40s, film noir made villains seem a little bit more at home, like in the Maltese Falcon, uh, of course, the Femme Fatales in Double Indemnity, uh, the villain in Sunset Boulevard. Mm-hmm. They were more sophisticated and built out, full, you know, multifaceted than just the Wicked Witch, okay, or the Universal Monsters. Yeah, so the, that's exactly true. Like, the, you could make these villains more sympathetic and have complex inner lives, but... They still like left enough mystery to make them interesting, um, yeah. and uh, yeah. now I'm thinking about like old Disney villains like Maleficent and what they did to her with mm-hmm. the Angelina Jolie movies and yeah. how they yeah. ruined her by oh no she's sympathetic and she was cast out from the kingdom and this and that all that did was yeah. water down I think one of the best Disney villains of all time I thought. She's, oh, she was a great she villain. Terrified she terrified me. Into a dragon. That was yeah. The, yeah. That was the most amazing moment. Yeah. Right. And uh, yeah, we're definitely going to talk about Disney with Disney villains later. Um, we could do a whole I thing mean, just on Disney villains, like the Wicked Witch, and you know, the, from from uh, Maleficent to the Wicked Witch in Snow White to uh, the evil stepmother in Cinderella. Mm-hmm. I mean, these were one-dimensional, but unforgettable. I remember th- having kind of a, a little crush on the uh, evil queen <laughs> from Snow White, more so than the uh, than Snow White herself yeah. when I was a child. So, Yeah, I actually think that a movie can do really well with having a villain be more interesting than the hero. But if you have a mm-hmm. hero that's more interesting than the villain, I think that's actually more of a problem. Mm. 
Yeah, because the heroes are good. I mean, I'm thinking of TV shows like that where the heroes are kind of boring and the villains are just so much fun. And like I said, it if you have the right actor and you could write a villain as despicable as you want and the writer can the actor can have fun with it and and some of the best villains i'm thinking of like off the top of my head Dennis Hopper mm-hmm. in so many of his movies uh Willem Dafoe Christopher Walken in so many movies they just look like they're having more fun than whoever they're up against <laughs> yeah. and yeah in the end they're ultimately going to meet their demise but man is it fun to watch them <laughs> Right. Yeah. Does anybody watch Speed because they care about Keanu Reeves? I mean, he's good in it, but I mean... He does a good job, but yes, yeah, Dennis <laughs> Hopper is just so much fun. Yeah. Yeah. Or look at, um, yeah, actually all the Keanu Reeves movies. Look at um, The Matrix with uh, Agent Smith. And again, he's another Hugo character Weaving. that's very yeah. simple, um, mm-hmm. but I thought he was great. And there was enough mystery to his character. Oh, absolutely. Because he had a few little quirks when he takes off his sunglasses and his earpiece. And he, there's there's a lot going on in, in The Matrix. That's uh, that, that's one of the last most personal blockbusters. I mean, I'm, I'm reading a book right now that's about uh, film and, and, and it has a whole big section on uh, The Matrix. And it's just amazing what that movie was able to get away with. Mm-hmm. Uh, 21, 22 years ago now that just, it could not be done today. On original idea, an original script, yep. no, not a previous property with a, you know, big budget, relatively big budget. That's uh, it's pretty insane. Yep. So let's, uh, let's go into like the, the later decades. What do you think in terms of, um, if we go to like the 60s or 70s, like Ah, this is where it gets really interesting. Yes. Um, I'll share my thoughts and then because I actually I have a lot here that I want to talk about with the 60s and into the 70s. I, and in the 60s and the 70s, villains, the golden age was over and movies were changing. The big studios, you know, the way they made movies like, you know, assembly line sort of was dying out. And the 60s and 70s the villains became more three-dimensional. I think because the writers and the directors had more freedom. And I feel like in the 60s, it all changed. And the game changer was, of course, Alfred Hitchcock when he introduced us in Psycho to Norman Bates. And that was the game changer. And then a few years later, based on a true story, um, In Cold Blood, fantastic movie directed by Richard Brooks based on the Truman Capote film. Those two movies, you know, from 1960 and 1967, I think they showed us that evil is among us. Before that, villains in horror movies were always inhuman monsters living in gothic castles. Those movies brought the evil into our homes and made them more intimate, more relatable, and more terrifying. Mm -hmm. Like you said in our previous uh, episode, that Norman Bates is so relatable and he's so, you know, um, you can empathize with him so much and that is makes him even scarier. And I think David Lynch, one of our favorite directors, sort of made his entire career based on that. Yeah. Villains became more psychological and at the same time, so did the movies they were in. Uh, they used to be just James Bond villains were the villains. Gangsters, bank robbers, movies from the Golden Age and Universal's monsters. They were all villains that were in the business of being evil. It was their job, like the Wicked Witch, or it was their identity, like the Phantom of the Opera. 
then villains started to change. And I think we saw that early in the 60s. What, what, what do you think about some 60s villains and, you know, cinema in that time? Oh, yeah, I absolutely agree with you. you. You know, you think about the old Westerns where all of the villains had the black hats and uh, mm-hmm. and the cowboys, the good cowboys had the white hats. And in the yep. 60s, definitely that changed a lot. I'm thinking about even a movie like Night of the Living Dead where you think Ooh, that the... The zombies are actually the villains, but you find out that the people right next to you or the police, you know, or so- mm-hmm. just society in general is out to get you. And, you know, not to go into TV shows that much, but with the Twilight Zone, it was the same type of thing. Yeah. Yeah. So, excellent. Excellent point. And you made me, when you were describing how the humans are worse than the zombies, I feel like that was the whole theme of the recent show, The Walking Dead. Yeah. Uh, so none of those things would exist if not George Romero's first movie. And you didn't even get into the racial or political implications of Night of the Living Dead. That could be a whole podcast on its own. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So yeah, it's just uh, it's just really interesting. Um, and I think that was just... Um, it's, you also could see that in term. We're of course talking about American cinema here, just how the times were changing, just in American life, and people were no longer trusting as trusting as for the you know the government was failing them, you know exactly. there, there was just that kind of fall from innocence, and the movies w- fell with them. They reflected that. I'm thinking the you know the influential movies of 1967, uh, In the Heat of the Night, The Graduate, and Bonnie and Clyde. Yep. You know uh, those those three off the and Bonnie and Clyde are they villains? Are they heroes? Yeah, exactly. They're both. I mean, it's it's such a you know people were so you know conflicted on who to root for, and then five years later, of course, The Godfather I think perfected that oh, for its yeah. time. Great. Uh, you Great know choice. they're they're murderers, but they're a family, and you love them, and they love each other. Um, so yeah, I, I mean, I've got more that i can say about the the 60s going into the 70s um if you want yeah no i mean i think i think that's great i think the godfather is a great example especially because you have michael corleone who's the hero of the first one and he Mm -hmm. becomes the you know the anti-hero or the villain by the second Mm -hmm. by part two he becomes what he swore he would not be yeah. But he just, you know, accepted that destiny. He accepted that role and he was good at it and he was scary good at it. But you forget how scary he was because, yes, he was the main character. He was the hero and the people around him were trying to kill him. So they were even worse. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I mean, going into in the 60s and 70s, villains became more three dimensional. And in the 70s, I think with what happened with the assassinations from JFK and Martin Luther King and Robert Kennedy, you know, political assassins became the trend. Uh, you think of the Manchurian Candidate, which actually came out a year before Kennedy was assassinated, that has one of the greatest, most complex villains, well, two villains, Angela Lansbury and Lawrence Harvey as uh, uh, Ray- Raymond Shaw uh, in the Manchurian oh, Candidate. Oh, yeah, great. Uh, but the, the, then the, the paranoia thrillers from the 70s, like The Conversation, Three Days of the Condor, The Parallax View, these villains in those movies and many others from that time reflected the times of the assassinations of their political leaders and the Watergate scandal with the government wiretapping and breaking into places we never thought they would. And also in those times, people were idealistic in the 60s and 70s. They wanted to change the world. Civil rights movement, the women's liberation. So their villains reflected that. And thinking about the James Bond villains from those times, they wanted to rule the world. Yeah. So that's where the 60s and 70s villains sort of, you know, 
came to prominence and what their motivations were. And they reflected what the, the opposite of what the people wanted. Yeah. And you look at also movies like, um, like Dirty Harry. I know that's one of your favorites. And, um, it is a good movie. And yeah. what that, you know, it's this, it's kind of the same thing. It's, it's not a movie that I don't think paints the all the police as being perfect either. So they're clearly not yeah. he's willing to do whatever it takes to get the bad guy and right. break the constitution, and it catches up with him, and then he takes him down anyway. Right. And but the argument of the movie is that it that that needs to happen. You know, mm-hmm. it's like you have to, to stop these killers. Right. Yeah. That you know that. So it almost becomes that like society or the American way of life is actually the overarching villain. Absolutely right. And and that was Dirty Harry is, you know, based on a true story. It's based on the Zodiac killer. Right. So, yeah, I guess why don't we go into, unless you want to talk about the 70s more, um, I think the 80s are pretty interesting, too. With the, I, I do, too. I think I touched on the 70s. That's kind of the, you know, the polit- I want to make sure that, you know, the, the political paranoia movies, that was very popular in that time. And we saw a lot of the villains being sort of our government or ourselves or think of like Marathon Man, someone working for the government, uh, those kinds of movies. But yeah, moving into the 80s, the villain changed immensely then. Yes, definitely. Um, Yeah, we've got, um, well, I know we talk about Dennis Hopper a lot, but we've got a a character like Frank Booth, which I know we Mm. both could talk about um, him a lot in Blue Velvet. Um, and again, mm-hmm. that's going into like the whole evil lives next door. And uh, yep. yeah, I mean, that's that's really what Blue Velvet is all about. And a lot of people just don't understand it. Like they think that there's parts of it that are cheesy and, you know, then it's mixed with this. I think they're intentionally oh, cheesy. Definitely. I think David Lynch made the, he made a 1950s movie in the 80s. Yes. I think that, I think Blue Velvet, I wanted to begin with Blue Velvet for the 80s because mm. it's kind of about that fall from grace that we're talking about in American life, how... From the 60s and 70s, yes. Exactly. And it's kind of almost introducing, yeah, these these are the the types of villains that are here to stay. I mean, especially, Mm. you know, I know we're going, I'm going backwards, but the, uh, you mentioned the Zodiac Killer and then also, of course, Charles Manson. So Mm, it's just like, you know, the killers live next door. They could be your neighbors. Mm -hmm. They could be... Yeah, they could be a house down from you. and uh, Like in Psycho, which was once introduced in Psycho with Hitchcock, and then David Lynch just took that even further to places where, you know, people were afraid to look. Mm-hmm. And uh, he brought the evil, you know, and he would do that later, of course, in Twin Peaks and, uh, you know, uh, Lost Highway and a lot of other things that he's done. But, yeah, that is a terrific, terrific example. And, man, is Frank Booth dynamic. I'm not going to say he's fun, but he's funny, yeah, <laughs> and uh, he's he's really something that uh, you will never forget. You might not like Blue Velvet. Uh, I know it's a very polarizing movie. You and I love it. Uh, a lot of people love it. Um, yes. The great critic Roger Ebert hated it. I have friends of mine that have maybe not hated it, but didn't quite know how to feel at the end. Uh, but I look at it as it's also, it's all the things you said, but Blue Velvet's also a coming-of-age movie. Mm-hmm. Because it, it's it's almost as if if, if if the graduate, if Benjamin Braddock and Elaine ran off and decided to solve a mystery, 
<laughs> and then they ran into the killer, a psycho killer like Norman Bates or Frank Booth. That's what Blue Velvet seemed, felt like to me. It was the graduate, but then it took a left turn, and it was a sharp left turn. Yes. So, yeah, I mean, the 80s, 60s and 70s, people were trying to change the world. The villains were trying to stop that change and take over the world. And then in the 80s, during the Reagan era, nobody cared. And I feel like a lot of villains in the more conventional movies, because Blue Velvet's a very unconventional movie. That's a a once-in-a-decade type of movie. There's not a lot of... It doesn't have many peers from the time period it was made. Mm -hmm. Uh, But the more standard villains, you know... Think about what they wanted. Nobody cared about changing the world. What did people want in the 80s? Money. They wanted to make lots of money. Yep. So what did the villains do? They wanted to make even more money. So they <laughs> kidnap and kill people to make a lot of money. And that's why I think Hans Gruber from Die Hard may be the most 80s villain of all time. Okay? Yep. Like, look at the way he talked, dressed, acted. He, he was sort of... He was sort of what Americans wanted, even though he wasn't American. Um, But it was what he wanted, and our values were reflected in that, and he was trying to get even more. Um, But then the 80s also had the foreign, fanatical, physical powerhouses that were intimidating, I think, one of the most memorable 80s villains, Ivan Drago, as the evil, steroid-using, Soviet (laughs) specimen boxer from Rocky IV. Mm -hmm. So it was okay to hate on the Russians throughout the 60s, 70s, and 80s, like the early James Bond movies. Uh, so that was also a big common theme throughout the decade as well as the Cold War was coming to an end. Yeah. I also think that villains became less predictable. Um, I was think going through all my examples and I was just realizing that a, a lot of them just became, they became more sympathetic, possibly a little bit, but also like mm-hmm. brutal, unpredictable. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm thinking about like the Joker in in Batman, Tim Burton's Batman. In Tim Burton's Batman, yeah. or you're saying sympathetic? I think Frank Booth is incredibly sympathetic. Uh, Maybe not the first time you watch Blue Velvet, but later on, you know, I think he's in love with the Dorothy, the the Isabella Rossellini character, and he's just so confused and twisted and angry he can't express it properly. Mm-hmm. Like to me, Blue Velvet's a tragic love story. Yeah, I actually have that in my notes that he's psychotic, but strangely understandable. He's not mm-hmm. this really, I mean, he's so he's super out there, but somehow you also connect to him in a primal way. Mm-hmm. This is really Absolutely. interesting. In a primal sort of, it's your id. He's a walking, talking id. Yeah. Uh, but he's, he's just very, he's brutal and he's violent and he's unpredictable and terrible. But there's a sadness to him, and I guess it's brilliant, you know, the way, once again, the way he was written and directed by David Lynch has to be a factor. But the way Dennis Hopper played him, I did sympathize with that character. Once again, maybe not the first time I saw it, but certainly later on, and he's just, you know, such a tortured soul. I I want him to, you know, sit down on an analyst's chair, (laughs) uh, you know, and not go to jail or get killed or anything like that. So, uh, but what you said about the the 80s villains becoming more unpredictable, I could argue against that because let's, when you think of the 80s, one of the most popular trends from the 80s was the slasher movies after the success of Michael Myers killing spree in Halloween. And then came the very successful horror franchises of Freddy Krueger, Jason Voorhees, and to a lesser extent, Leatherface, Pinhead, and Chucky. And the killers 
from those movies became almost like a second uh, coming of the universal monster movies of Dracula, Wolfman, uh, The Mummy, um, and they sort of had so much success at the box office because they were such cheap movies and they made so much money and all the teenagers had to see them, uh, but they were colorful. Yeah. You know, Michael Myers, Jason, Freddy, the, these were colorful. They were like WWE wrestlers, okay, more than complex movie characters. And you knew they were going to eventually lose, but you wanted to buy that ticket and you liked rooting for them for the first 90 minutes before they eventually met their death. So that was a trend that came out in the 80s that we, you know, it died off in the 90s and we're still kind of seeing with the remakes and the sequels and the reboots of those characters. There hasn't been a new horror character that's been iconic like those since the late 70s and 80s. Yeah. No, I think that's a great point. I mean, there's definitely, yeah, there were some villains that were super, like, clockwork <laughs> killing killing sprees. Yeah. But I think there's also... You knew that every year you were going to get a new Jason or a new Freddy, and you knew what was going to happen pretty much every time, but people still came and saw it, and it still made tons of money. Yeah. But I think that also introducing a character like the Joker in the, in the 80s mm-hmm. and Roy Batty and Blade Runner... Um, Ooh, how good one. it's almost like um, it's like everybody had money. You know, there's all this greed, but it was also like, you know, pe- we talked about this a little bit with um, Fight Club in the last episode, but it was almost mm. like, okay, well, if it's all about money and everybody's got money now, like where where do these villains fit in? And uh, that's why mm-hmm. I think they become unpredictable. Like, you know, the Joker, you can't buy him. He, you know, he's not really... He doesn't really care about money. I mean, we could, I mean, obviously, it, it goes I would even, say that would be Heath Ledger's Joker more than I was going to say, like, Joker. it goes even further yeah. than Christopher Nolan. Because he burned version, that but, giant yeah. mound of money. Yeah. Oh, totally. But just the character of the Joker is not somewhat, not really, I mean, his, I mean, he's, his main plan is to gas the entire city, right? Like, mm. so he's not, he, he, he stole my balloons. He's throwing, he's throwing money out of the, uh, out of the blimp. So, you know, the Joker, mm-hmm. he uses money more in, um, the, uh, Tim Burton one, but he doesn't seem like he's affected by money. And then Roy Batty, of course, um, is, uh, He's just trying to live, you know. He's, he's from try- Blade Runner, by the yeah, way. In Blade case Runner. you don't know, Roy Batty. It's Rutger Hauer's character from Blade Runner, one of the most memorable, sympathetic villains of all time. But keep going. Yeah, on. so he's, you know, he's this brutal, unpredictable character because he's he's another character you can't really imagine him getting bought. He can't really be bought. He's not motivated. No, because he that. has one mission and money. What's he going to do with the money, right. even if he gets it? He knows he doesn't have a long time to live to spend it. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, he his whole he, he just wants to live. So he even mm-hmm. though he's super brutal in the movie and unpredictable and scary, um, I think by the end, yeah, you really. I mean, he's really the heart of the entire movie, which is yeah. really interesting. He's very sympathetic. You're naming. I mean, he, we were talking about other sympathetic villains. Uh, he's you know more sympathetic than Frank Booth, I think, because he's in a worse situation. Mm-hmm. Frank Booth, you know, was psychotic and he could have just found another woman that liked him that wasn't married. Uh, this guy is, you know, looking for his father, looking for his identity, looking for his, you know, why am I here? Why was I put here just to die? Uh, sort of mission. And it's it's phenomenal. It's, it's a great performance. And that Tears of Rain speech is one of the all-time greatest monologues, I think, in any movie. Oh, yeah, definitely. 
I mean, yeah, so it's interesting. The 80s kind of like had, you know, they have those characters that are super motivated by money, like Michael Douglas in um, Wall Street, of course. Mm, Gordon Gecko from yeah, Wall Street. Gordon yeah, Gekko. or the Hans Gruber is like Michael, yeah. uh, uh, Michael Douglas, uh, you know, with <laughs> as a criminal, I suppose. Yeah. yeah. But then you also have these villains that are kind of veering away from the traditional, like, they want to rule the world, they want to, they want to make money, you know, like, yeah, Roy Batty and Blade Runner, um, the Terminator, you know, and the and the Arnold Schwarzenegger and the original. Yeah, Terminator. I mean, but you're those those are sci-fi bad guys, and I guess the they're programmed. The, the both of them are synthetic, you know, artificial, sure. you know, beings. And yeah, they're so because they're programmed differently. Yeah, money is not their motive. Yeah, motivation. I guess I'm just thinking that. You know, the writers of these movies, because money was all around, they were trying to veer into potentially more interesting territory with making villains that weren't motivated. You know, there were there were people that were like leaning super far into the 80s money craze. And then I think mm-hmm. there were these other mm-hmm. screenwriters that were kind of veering away from that through sci-fi, through, um, you know, superhero movies, etc., so I just think it's, yeah, it's kind of interesting. Yeah, they did a great job. I mean, yeah. Roy Batty and the Terminator, are, you know, you don't get much better or more memorable villains than that. Yeah. So should we, uh, should we jump into the 90s? I think I've said everything I wanted to say about the 80s. Yeah, Because, yeah, so. we talked about, you know, to me, the, the, a lot of the villains could be in the Hans Gruber category. Or which also went into the 90s, of course, because um, every they just wanted Alan Rickman to be the villain in every 90s movie or every actor to do an Alan Rickman impersonation from Die Hard right. in every 90s action movie. Um, but then also I did want to make sure I mentioned the, you know, the, the villains in the horror movies, which was such a huge craze. And we're still feeling the remnants of that. But we haven't had a, that was like a horror renaissance for the yep. slasher, you know, genre. That was a huge, huge money-making deal. And every studio tried to cash in on them. And most most were not successful, but a few were. Uh, but yeah, the 90s, I think they took it, you know, they took the Hans Gruber, uh, you know, villain a little bit further. Um, I'll share my thoughts of the 90s right now, and then you could share yours and comment. Sure. Um, the, I, the 90s had a lot of mad bombers. Mm-hmm. I feel like that was a big trend. There was Blown Away, there was Speed, there was a spe- The Specialist with Stallone. They all came out in the same year. Uh, so that was a big, big trend. Um, and they were all threatening to kill more people unless they got a lot of money. And then there was also Serial Killers was a big deal in the 90s. Uh, Anthony Hopkins, Silence of the Lambs, uh, Seven, uh, or you know Natural Born Killers, which built on the Bonnie and Clyde theme of you know criminals in love and relating to them so 90s movies also really was the decade where i think if you want to look at the 90s movies for having something that they brought great to the other you know eras of cinema where 90s movies may have been the best i would say that was the decade where crime movies took center stage and became fully mature Movies mm. like Goodfellas, Reservoir Dogs, Pulp Fiction, Usual Suspects, Miller's Crossing, Casino, Heat, Jackie Brown, and so many more. They made burglars and killers more likable and relatable than ever. The building on the foundation that was started with Bonnie and Clyde and then further solidified by Francis Ford Coppola with his Godfather pictures, they took those ideas and 
just ran with them and made them even more commonplace where it's almost, you know, the villains in half of the best movies from the 90s were also heroes Mm -hmm. or the heroes were also the villains with all the movies that I just mentioned. I feel like crime movies were everywhere in the 90s and a lot of them were really, really good. Yep. Yeah, it's interesting. I I do agree that it seems like um, movies from the 90s kind of like took the themes from the 80s and just times it by 20, you know, and they made Mm -hmm. some really memorable villains and they made some really ridiculous villains like um like you know even like a movie like face off and con air like i i love those movies but they're you know they really ridiculous so over the top (laughs) it's like once again john malkovich great villain in con air great villain in the line of fire yep yeah you're right he's having fun so much fun in both of them yeah and uh john travolta had so much fun playing a villain i think it started with pulp fiction and then Broken Arrow, Get Shorty to a lesser extent. He was a criminal. He was a mafia guy in that. And, uh, of course, Face Off, which you just mentioned, a terrific example of him as a villain. Yeah. You also had a lot of movies about villains that had a point to prove. You mentioned Seven, um, you know, mm-hmm. movie where the villain the villain wins at the end, even though he, he dies. Um, Spoil, I guess Silence of the Lambs. Yeah. Anthony Hopkins is walking around at the end. Exactly. He's yeah. free. Mm-hmm. Okay. You know, that's another terrific serial killer. Serial killers were big. Yeah. Okay. And then I, and natural born killers. They were, a, you know, a couple of serial killers, a romantic partnership of serial killers. So they, they were the 90s answer to Bonnie and Clyde. Yeah. Yeah. You get a lot more sympathetic uh, villains like that, I guess, or not even sympathetic, but just villains that you love there's a whole the quote the whole love to hate villain you know but they were just so much more mature they were more fully realized and mature than villains had ever been before think of henry hill and everybody else in goodfellas Mm -hmm. you don't want to see them die even though they're killing people yeah uh the characters in casino the characters in you know pulp fiction okay they're all bad yeah but you know, yeah, I was, they're the hero. I was gonna There's say, like, really, no other good people. Reservoir Dogs, same thing. I was, yeah, I was gonna say, Pulp Fiction, um, yeah, Reservoir Dogs and Pulp Fiction, both of them. You know, there really aren't good. It's not, yeah, you're not even thinking about these characters as good or bad. You know, it just kind of throws you into their world, and this is what's happening. But they, there aren't really questions about morality. There's more like questions about loyalty. And it's like it's yeah, interesting. Yeah, it's, it's, it's not about Goodfellas, like, especially. Yeah, yeah, it's not about oh they're doing the bad bad things. It's like no, they're just breaking the codes. Mm-hmm. And Pulp Fiction has you know that has a lot has that in spades. And Reservoir Dogs, of course, as as well. You know, mm. it's like these characters don't even have names. They just have this code that's between them, and somebody broke it. Then you can't break it. You got to be a professional, like Mr. Pink says. <laughs> yeah. He's the only one. I don't think we. Uh, he's the only one. We don't know his real name. Yep. <laughs> so, yeah, you're right. And, and I think a, a lot of that comes with the writing. They had good writers that had grown up watching Bonnie and Clyde and The Godfather and other films like that, and they had writers and directors, and they let the actors go free. So it was very, very good acting. I mean, think of Casino. You got De Niro, Pesci, and Sharon Stone, who may, may be her best performance, but 
it's she doesn't hold a candle to you know the De Niro and James Woods and Joe Pesci in that movie, in my opinion. Or think about Heat. You know, De Niro and uh, Pacino. One's a cop, one's a crook, and they're paralleling their lives, and they're so similar. Yep. Yeah, no, totally right. Mm-hmm. And then you've got. I'm going to bring up Disney villains again because I think it's interesting how Disney villains change through the years. You know, you've got more complex villains than, uh, you know, the Wicked Witch of, not the Wicked Witch of the West, but uh, the Wicked Witch, I guess that's her name, or the Evil Queen or whatever. I don't think they really, yeah, they don't even really have names. Any any early villains, yeah, I don't think she has a name. She's just the Evil Queen, yeah. But then you've got characters like Scar um, and Jafar where you actually get much more backstory on them and you, they're not exactly sympathetic, but you just know more of their motivation. It's not just like they're evil. Um, so they're still pretty evil. They are, I mean, Gaston oh, is still pretty, you know, oh, yeah. he gets rejected. So, you know, he, uh, Jafar, I don't remember. What was Jafar's motivation? What was Jafar's, what makes him sympathetic? Well, I wouldn't say Jafar is sympathetic, but there's a lot more scenes mm. with these, these villains. They're not like these mysterious characters, like where you don't really know, like what their motivation is. Um, besides, well, I guess, I guess the Disney characters, you always knew their motivation Mm -hmm. like the queen was jealous of snow white and everything but you know there was cinderella or whomever but they weren't given as much screen time i guess as what i'm trying to say in the 90s you know like scar Scar, yeah oh there you go yeah scar was basically claudius from hamlet yes you're you're the the okay all right i want to make sure i got the right name Mm -hmm. because he's basically the brother that becomes king and you know when the father dies yeah so and there's a there's an interesting scene where Scar's actually holding um, a skull, and it's it's obviously very rem- reminiscent of of Hamlet, the uh, alas poor mm. Yorick scene, which I always thought was disturbing okay. because the skull that he's holding is a lion's skull. So there was a question of whether that was Mufasa's skull because you don't know what really happens to Mufasa's body. Like, did Scar actually eat Mufasa? And then he was just, he has the skull of, of, of Mufasa in his hand. And I he's haven't moving thought it that deep into the Lion King. I've got to see it again. <laughs> yeah, there's, there's some pretty dark stuff. So I guess, uh, I guess that's what I'm trying to say is, you know, they explore more, like Scar has so much more screen time than Maleficent in, uh, mm-hmm. in Sleeping Beauty, for example. Sleeping Beauty. Mm-hmm. It's no longer just a character yeah, 90, that's popping so villains, at the end, you know, or like at the beginning and then popping up at the end to like fight. Yeah. So villains in the 90s just became bigger yes. in every sort of way, even if they weren't three dimensional, you know, like some of the ones that we mentioned, they just got a lot more screen time. And when you really think about it, even Anthony Hopkins in Silence of the Lambs, he's helping the FBI. He's helping Clarice catch another serial killer who's possibly even worse than he is because he's still out there. And uh, Anthony Hopkins is, you know, trapped in a cage. Uh, so, yeah, it's, it's, it, it humanized the villains a lot more than any of the previous decades, and it gave them more to do. Yeah. Okay, they weren't just, you know, De Niro wasn't just a robber in Heat. Okay, uh, Henry Hill wasn't just a mafia guy in Goodfellas. Uh, the, the Jules and Vincent uh, Travolta and Samuel Jackson, they were way more than just hitmen. Yes. They, just from their conversations, you got to know them so well, and you don't want anything bad to happen to them, even as they're killing people. Mm-hmm. I just thought of Ursula and um, Little Mermaid, even though that is 1989. 
it's very much on the cusp of well, close like, enough. At yeah. least in that golden age of Disney characters, where yeah, you, mm-hmm. she's just such a great villain too, and you you know about her backstory, how she um, she wants revenge on King Triton, and you know there's there's a lot more screen time, a lot more to her than those stock villains from before, but just as effective in a different way. Um, yeah, I remember her being very memorable with the black and purple, mm-hmm. the, the tentacles that she had. That really stood out to me, yeah. So should we go into the 2000s? This is where I feel like things get go downhill. <laughs> this is where if things get hazy. So, I mean, yeah, I, everything with the 90s continued, and then I think a lot of things changed for the whole world and, of course, movies after 9-11. I think 9-11 changed everything. And this had been happening before a little bit. Um, because then villains became more faceless because mm-hmm. I think we didn't want to offend Muslim groups. So movies made sure to show people of all ethnicities and colors coming together as one or as Americans uh, to fight the villains uh, that were bent on destruction. And I think the original Spider-Man from 2002 was the most obvious early example of this. And I think from that point on, movie villains all just sort of started to blend together and change. I mean, what do you think about that? Oh, I 100% agree. I think that in the race to be super PC and mm-hmm. not offensive, which I, I, I think is a, an important thing in general, but I think that there's a point right. where it goes too far, where you, you if you mm-hmm. just neuter all of the villains, you know, it just, mm-hmm. I don't know, just life just is boring (laughs) just you know movies just become more boring so then what do you want money what are they i remember one of the most confusing one of the it's a horrible movie van helsing with uh hugh jackman i i remember sitting there and thinking okay what's the motivation why does dracula want frankenstein and these babies and what what is this what is going on here okay what was the motivation it was just dracula was dracula and he's bad and the wolfman's the wolfman and he's bad and frank it didn't make any sense so it made for a really bad ugly bad effects bad action bad cgi but forgettable villains uh, just when it should it was dracula for crying out loud and the wolfman and all these mon- you know the classic universal monsters going up against uh van helsing and it was just so bad mm-hmm. Ugh. but yeah the pc thing i think had been brewing um you know I, going going back people were outraged when arabs were portrayed as the villains in true lies and in the mummy the brendan fraser mummy movie right or chinese they they were i mean the departed and the dark knight were banned in china they lost millions from that market uh and so i think we're running out of ethnic groups to not only stereotype but also paint as villains and you know for a long time it was okay to say the germans were bad now it's not it was okay to say the russians were bad with the cold war now it's not so i'm thinking like in the 90s it really started remember mighty ducks 2 remember who Mm -hmm. the villains were in mighty ducks 2 not really honestly i haven't seen that in a while they were from iceland how many people are gonna offend there okay so how silly was that they found safe villains because they didn't want to lose the market in germany they did the cold war was over so they didn't want to upset the russians anymore so they went with iceland Uh, and i was just it's just really just so sad and forgettable and not compelling and uh, i only remember it because i thought it was so pathetic uh, so that's why I remember that. But uh, yeah, they're on a quest for, you know, to not offend certain ethnic groups. 
And that does, like you said, neuter the villains. It's funny, though, that you bring up Germans, because I think one of the best um, examples of a, of a great villain from this decade is uh, Hans Landa from Inglorious mm. Bastards. Um, I think he, he's one of the last great villains that I could really think yeah. about in the past 20 years. I agree 100%. That was 2009, so a little over a decade ago. But yeah, he was he was phenomenal and unforgettable. And man, did he deserve that Oscar for that. And the one from Django Unchained, too, even though he wasn't a villain in that. I guess DiCaprio was the villain in that. Him and Samuel L. Jackson. Yeah. So... I guess it goes to show that Tarantino can still write villains. It doesn't matter. He didn't really he care about villains and... offending anybody. <laughs> no. no. Well, I guess if it's a Nazi, it's okay. If you're making the Germans bad in 1942, that's okay. If you're making the Germans bad in 2020... Maybe that's a problem, and maybe looking True. at the glo- political, you know, global, you know, situation today, maybe the Germans aren't such bad guys today uh, compared to other countries. Uh, thinking about how progressive they are with their politics, but uh, I mean, yeah, I, I, nowadays, and also women, women and minorities cannot be villains anymore. We have to be politically correct. Uh, I was thinking John Ford's The Searchers could not be made today, at least not oh, yeah. the way right. it was. With a pack of native, this is one of the greatest iconic John Wayne westerns of all time. A pack of Native Americans being portrayed as evil, wild savages that kidnap and murder white families. Uh, Germans and Japanese used to be acceptable, but not so much anymore. And I was thinking about, you know, all the Vietnam movies, you know. In the span of less than a decade, the Vietnamese people were portrayed radically different in the deer hunter than how they were in platoon and casualties of war from you know less than 10 years later in the 80s and then uh heaven and earth uh in 1993 another oliver stone vietnam movie uh so russians were a long-running villains in the 007 movies but after the cold war ended Bond movies had to get more creative, and the villains during the Pierce Brosnan and Daniel Craig era were mega-maniacal rich guys hell-bent on taking over the world. Some of the villains worked, some did not, but they weren't attached to an ethnicity or a country. They were just these rogue, evil people, dominant, you know, trying to take over something for whatever reason, their own, you know, gain. Right. But I also think 9-11, because... It wasn't like a country that attacked us. It was a group. Mm. Um, it just kind of made everything get a lot blurrier too. And it was it was almost like mm. who can we trust or who is yeah who is the real villain? And I think that's what kind of permeates the Dark Knight trilogy, which I really want to talk about because I think mm. those are really interesting. So the movies really the Dark Knight trilogy really started a new well it wasn't new it was something that had been around for a while like the whole surprise villain at the end Mm. um but i think that the dark knight trilogy does it in an interesting way where um and what i mean by surprise villain is like pretty much a villain that you don't know is the actual true villain like ras al ghul in the first, in uh, Batman Begins. Liam Neeson's you, character. Yeah, exactly, where you don't know he's actually Ra's al Ghul until the end of the movie. And then I just movie. realized they do it in the second one and the third one. <laughs> yes. Because <laughs> so, the second one, you assume it's the Joker's the villain the whole time, but... <laughs> yeah, exactly, and then it ends up being Two-Face. 
Um, there's Two Face. There's Aaron Eckhart. And there's actually Dent, you could argue that all of Gotham is the are the villains because you know it's like the police is, mm. the police are chasing Batman at the end and everything. So I think yep. it yep. kind of the reason they're do that Christopher Nolan was doing that is is to show like you know that anybody could be a villain that you know pretty much what we were saying with Blue Velvet to a certain extent where. It's like the villain could but be... But a little bit more comic book, a little mm-hmm. bit more, you know, fun, I right. guess, for the masses. He, you know, the, the themes of Blue Velvet, but for the masses mm-hmm. that, yeah, you know, Talia al Ghul was, you know, Bruce Wayne's, you know, friend and lover at one point in that movie, and she's ends up being she's revealed the, to be the villain. She's the surprise villain. Yep. <laughs> yeah, she, so that's, I, yeah, I never stopped to realize that all three Batman movies feature a surprise villain, because they all have the obvious villain. There's Scarecrow, yep. Batman Begins... Joker, Dark Knight, Bane, Dark Knight Rises. Yep. But then there's a surprise villain in each one, and I never really stopped to think that he did the same thing three times. Yeah. And I think it really hones in on this this whole 9-11 paranoia, honestly, mm. because then you also have Batman becoming... Well, he's on the cusp of becoming the villain in the Dark Knight. In the Dark when Knight, When he's, yeah. uh, you know, there's the whole... You know, surveillance thing, which was a terrifying. Um, well, I mean, it's still going on. Like you know that these the government spying on us, the internet, just like anything, social media spying on us. But uh, it, it was more new when the Dark Knight came out, where Batman, you know, he's utilizing everybody's cell phones to track the Joker, and there's this. That was a clear analogy on the Patriot. Exactly Act, thought, the Bush. Era. Yes. Yeah. So. It's yeah, it's it's interesting that um, yeah, that the I would think you could really trace how America has had changed with. I don't think obviously the Dark Knight. If you release this in the 1980s, the same you know Christopher Nolan. If he was making this in the 80s or 90s, they would not be like this at all. I think that they're no, and they couldn't have been done like that. I, I for obvious reasons, it took Tim Burton's Batman to, for Batman to be more than just pow, bam, yes. poof, you know, from from the Adam West campy days. Um, but then it really, yeah, it it became more mature under uh, Tim Burton, and then that, of course, the Bruce Tim Batman animated series made that's the Batman that people of a certain age grew up with and know. And so then it became acceptable for him to make, you know, the smart, sophisticated uh, Batman movies, which I mean, I. I mentioned heat before and if I were Michael Mann, I'd want to punch Christopher Nolan in the face. He basically took heat and put costumes on the guys on the De Niro and Pacino character and moved the action to uh, Chicago. Gotham city was actually Chicago instead of LA and kind of made the same movie. So it's, it's a very, if like I once said, if Scorsese was to ever direct a comic book movie, it would have been the dark Knight. Yeah. Cause everyone's bad. Everyone's got their hands dirty. Uh, but yeah, that's, that's an excellent, excellent point. And that represents yeah, that paranoia. what the times were like mm-hmm. in the 2000s. Yeah. That paranoia in a different than the seventies paranoia with like the government and assassins and mysterious, you know, agents. Yeah. Uh, it, it's, it's a very different, it's a paranoia that it could be anybody. Right. And that's sort of the terrorism, the, the, the effects of nine 11 that we're feeling. And, you know, with what's going on with the pandemic, when and if movies get back on their feet, it'd be very interesting to see, you know, what or how the, what the future of villains are going to be like, you know, after the Trump years, after the pandemic, after all of this craziness that we've been living through in recent years, uh, what they're going to do uh, with that, because that is that's that's crazy. Yeah, yeah that's good. Good points. 
Yeah. Yeah. So it's, yeah. So it's interesting. So now if I want to, I kind of want to talk about the, what Disney started doing with the surprise villains, because Mm. from 2012 onward, like literally back to back movies, Disney started doing this. And I actually think to a much nowhere near as good as Christopher Nolan did it. Um, sometimes it succeeds. Sometimes it's just like, okay. They're jumping on the bandwagon that Christopher Nolan started, I guess. Yeah. I feel like a lot of things are responses to his massively successful Dark Knight. Trilogy. Yeah. But I also think it makes the these villains less like more forgettable because you don't know that they're villains until the end and whereas christopher nolan Mm. he was using it at he did it so effectively um uh, the movies i'm talking about with disney by the way wreck it ralph is king candy turns Mm. out to be turbo in frozen hans the the love interest ends up being um anna's love interest or you think she's going to marry him he ends up being the villain Big Hero 6, by the way, all of these movies are back-to-back. Big Hero 6, um, Robert Callahan, um, who you think is uh, kind of like the mentor of... The, I forgot the kid's name, but um, the kid looks up to him. He ends up being the villain. Um, and then Zootopia, with the uh, character of Bellwether, um, you know, like the the tiny... What is she? A, is she a... I'm trying to remember what animal she is. <laughs> is she a... I, I saw all of these movies you're mentioning. I saw all of them once. And the only ones I liked were Wreck-It Ralph and Zootopia. And I, I kind of remember there being a twist in them, but I don't remember them that well. Well, she's like a bu- she's a bunny or some a small animal, and she's she's the one that's making the predators, you know, violent against uh, the 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 small animals. So that you know, she's trying to create. You know, it's obviously a metaphor for you know, racial profiling and, and everything. I actually love Zootopia. So I think that's the best example mm-hmm. of this. And I did I did love Wreck-It Ralph as well. But yeah, it's, it, it also... Uh, and I was, well, I'm sorry to interrupt, but Monsters, Inc., to a lesser extent. Oh, you're right. The, Steve Buscemi's the villain. And yeah. that was way before. That was 2001. And then it's revealed that uh, the James Coburn-voiced monster, I just <laughs> remember the actor who does the voice, uh, he's actually behind it and allowing them to do this. Yes. So, yeah, you're, uh, you're absolutely yeah, that's, right. That's another one. Because that one genuinely surprised me. I don't know if any of the other examples you're talking about, I sat there where I went, oh my God, but Monsters, Inc., I do remember remember going ooh i was cuz i guess it was 2001 so it was before mm-hmm. this trend of the surprise villain had become so commonplace with disney movies pixar but now that you bring up pixar they do it a lot they do it with they did it with toy story 2 which obviously was 1999 but um, you know that mm. was his name pistol pete he ends up being the villain um, the incredibles 2 which i thought was the mm. most obvious one where it was really clear that the uh, i think her name is evelyn she ends up being screen slaver um, and uh, Coco did it as well with er- Ernesto, where you you know you think that the 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 boy's uh, his childhood he you know he loves this uh, he looks he worships this uh, musician and he ends up being the villain who uh, you know is trying to stop him and everything. Mm-hmm. So yeah, because he finds out the truth about um, uh, the whole his past i think yeah he murdered oh yeah he like stole uh the the musician stole all of uh this other unknown musician's music and he killed him to take it so you know yeah it it's become like a really annoying trend especially in disney and pixar movies 
Um, and I just don't think it's as effective because you don't have that time spent with like characters like Jafar or Scar. You just like, it's like what we were saying. You looked at those villains. Yeah. You looked at Jafar. You looked at Scar. Ursula, the wicked uh, queen from Snow White, the evil stepmother from Cinderella, Maleficent. You just had to look at them and you knew it was the villain. You knew they were no good. It didn't matter if they were somewhat sympathetic or likable or fun. That was the villain, and that was it. You saw it on the poster. <laughs> the first minute they walked into the screen, you knew that was the villain. It was it was good guys versus bad guys. There was no middle ground. There was no gray area with those movies. For There's good things about that. There's bad things about that. But uh, if you want the traditional, the most memorable Disney villains are the ones that we've mentioned, the Maleficent, the Queen, the Scar, and you know that's the bad guy the second you see them, before you even buy a ticket to see the movie, and that's it, and they never veer, there's no surprises, there's nothing, and, you know, we've become, I guess, more sophisticated to sort of accept a surprise or accept a twist, and sometimes the greatest twist is there isn't a twist, and it's Occam's Razor, the most obvious, you know, <laughs> suspect is the villain, is the one that you thought all along, Yeah. So. Yeah, that would that's more of a twist than these you know wild narratives that go all over the place sometimes. It is interesting though that Disney is exploring this whole like villain. The villain is the one who is your friend or the one who's who you look up to or um, you know. The, Haven't the they made two door, Maleficent but... movies with Angelina Jolie? Yes, where she's the yep. okay. <laughs> so there you go. That's the war, that's the era we're living in. Maleficent can't just be the evil queen that she once was. She's got to be. Whatever Angelina Jolie has made her into. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that Zootopia, it worked because that movie was made... That was a mystery. It's a mystery movie. Mm. Um, Hans, I think it was interesting in Frozen. I know you don't like Frozen as much because they did the whole Disney princess thing, falling in love with the first guy she sees, and then they stood it on on his head where he ends up being the villain of the piece. But... There comes a point where it's like, okay, how many times are you going to do this, Disney? It's played out. Like, just introduce a, a villain from the beginning, make him or her memorable, and that's it. <laughs> you know, that's that's all I want now. From like, you can't just do the same exact thing. And Pixar, the same thing. You just can't keep doing it. It just gets that gets boring too. And it also becomes really mm -hmm. obvious because then it's like. Okay, who's going to be the villain in this one? Oh, okay, it's that character. So kids are now conditioned to. I bet you, if a if a if a child, you know, that's a child, someone fifteen years or younger was to see a movie like maybe The Sixth Sense for the first time, maybe they wouldn't think uh, that's such a twist. Yeah. Okay, maybe they wouldn't think, oh my god, they they might have seen that coming all along because they've been conditioned from the Disney and Pixar movies. Uh, but like I said before, the most memorable villains, I think, are. Yeah, from Disney, at least, the classic ones, the, you know, the ones that you just, yeah, you just say Maleficent, you say the Evil Queen, Ursula, Scar, there's no questioning that who they are and what they stand for, and you don't have to think twice about it. Um, but yeah, we mentioned Angelina Jolie, something else that I wanted to touch on, uh, I think, and you've, you've mentioned this a lot, how... You know, a lot of f movies out there have become feminist to the point where it's a flaw, where they have to punish men, and the men are bad and the women can do no wrong. I feel like it's tough to have a female villain in any sort of form, other than maybe that sympathetic, you know, Maleficent-type villain. Uh, I don't know if we could have a female Bond villain the way we used to, okay? I don't think that a femme fatale in a film noir or neo-noir could work. 
or even I think a character something like Sharon Stone in Basic Instinct or Charlize Theron. Uh, I don't know if she could have played her Academy Award winning role as raw and uncompromisingly as she did in Monster today if that movie were made today that was 2003 so i'm just curious what do you feel about you know where women could be villains because i feel like women were getting more interesting as villains Mm -hmm. and then because of the political correctness age we're living in it's sort of that that took a few steps back yeah the the only memorable woman villain that i can think of is i don't remember her name but in gone girl the wife um, okay. I, I, and I honestly think that, that the only reason that was able to be made is because it was written by a woman. And so mm, that's really yeah. interesting that women can write women as villains. But yeah, as a, as a man, and I'm not, I'm not going to go into like, oh, boohoo, it sucks to be a man. I'm not going to go into that. It doesn't suck to be a man. No, but, but it's okay. For They could have made Ben Affleck more evil. I think he was more evil and a sociopath in the book than he was in the movie, and they didn't quite explore that side of him in the movie as well as they could have. Yeah. But yeah, I think there comes a point where, um, you know, Black Panther, for example, I think that had a great, or maybe not great, but a good Marvel villain, one of the few good Marvel villains that I can remember. Hmm. And he, he was played by a black man, and I think the reason they were able to do this, and it's the same thing, it's because there were a lot of good black characters but it, you know, so it's it's, and it was also wasn't it written and directed by a yeah, black exactly. man? Yeah, exactly. Ryan Coogler. So, okay, so that yeah. So it's it's interesting. It, like in the era of of everything being PC, are we taking more interesting roles away from um, mm. people of color and women? Yeah, I'm thinking of one example. Go on. I'm just that's that's pretty much my point. Um, I yeah, um, I think that it. You know, if you have a like. I'm thinking of Denzel Washington in Training Day now. I was about to yeah. say Denzel Washington, it was 20 years ago in Training Day, but he played a villain so well, and you could see he was having so much fun and didn't care at all what people thought or were going to say, and he ended up winning an Oscar for right. that movie. That was, that you could divide, you look at Denzel's resume from a certain point. I wrote a whole article about this on my website, panandslam.com. Around the late 90s, early 2000s, the time of the hurricane and Remember the Titans, he completely decided, I'm going to do an action movie and have fun, and I'm going to do an Oscar movie and try to get an Oscar. And he's just been doing one for me, one for you, the Oscars kind of thing, is all he's been doing for 20-plus years now, it seems. And I think his he ended up winning an Oscar, ironically, for a movie that he did not give a crap about winning an Oscar and it was training day and he just had so much fun also directed by Antoine Fuqua an African American and it was a terrific one of the most memorable movies of the uh, villains of the 20th century and he was just having so much fun and he was so evil but you didn't hate him because I guess he was Denzel and there was something else to him and you wanted to see where this showdown with him and Ethan Hawke where the day would bring them Mm mm-hmm yeah, so I, I I think that yeah, villains should be you should be able to cast a villain of any race, gender, you know what whatever. Um, you know, like a villain doesn't necessarily have to represent every you know every woman or every mm-hmm. black man. Yeah, exactly. When you're an actor, you crave those juicy roles, and the the villains are sometimes the juiciest roles. Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. Look at, I mean, how many times, I, I would love to have been Dennis Hopper in Speed, 
or uh, John Malkovich in Con Air more than I'd want to be Nicolas Cage or Keanu Reeves as the heroes in those movies. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, they look like they're having so much fun. They're just and you have fun with them. The more fun they're having, the more fun you're having living vicariously through them and their, you know, deviousness. Uh, so, yeah, I think that's... You're right. It's an interesting point of you're, you might be depriving these actors of some otherwise really juicy, meaty, showy... Training Day, that was a showy role. So showy he won an Oscar for it, but that was a showy, fun, you know, crazy role. Yeah, it actually um, creates a lack of diversity... You know, if you're going to just mm. cast white males as the only villains, that's, to me, there's a problem with that. That's very problematic. Yeah. yeah, I'm trying to think of other examples where white men were the heroes and black men were the villains. Uh, Demolition Man, once again, a silly, showy, yeah. over-the-top movie. Wesley Snipes was the villain, Stallone was the hero. Um, you've Oh, what's that movie? Oh, I had another one. Oh, uh, For- Forrest Whitaker. This is not really a villain. It's he's Idi Amin, the movie where Last King of Scotland, where Forrest Whitaker plays Idi Amin. Mm. That's a juicy, showy role that he won an Oscar for. Uh, that's kind of an example. Um, but once again, that's sort of different because it's based on a true story. So that's a far cry from a Disney villain or a Dennis Hopper, you know, Training Day, uh, Denzel Washington type of role. Yeah. So that's more of an Oscar prestige movie, I guess. So, uh, yeah, that's... What do you think? Should we go into our, our favorite uh, movie villains of all time at this point? Um, to, I just I, I was surprised you didn't mention... I was just surprised you didn't mention one of the most obvious problems with today's villains is maybe because we're seeing both dimensions of them mm-hmm. uh, is the lack of mystery. Oh, definitely. I think we're not getting as, as much memorable villains. Yeah, that's just the, the, the last thing I wanted to point out because there's no mystery to these villains anymore. Okay, Joaquin Phoenix, oh, great performance. There was no mystery to his Joker. Okay, not like Heath Ledger's, at least, or even Jack Nicholson's. Um, The most obvious problems, okay, the biggest examples to me would be Darth Vader. Okay, he worked in the original Star Wars trilogy because he was so imposing, dark, and mysterious. But not anymore, not after the prequels. Okay, he was just a whiny kid, and we saw him and how he became Darth Vader, and it... I'm not saying Darth Vader's the greatest movie villain of all time, but uh, he's definitely in the top ten, maybe top five of all time. But after the prequels, if let's say you were ranking him at number one or number two, he took a few steps back. He's maybe like four or five now at this point, uh, maybe. Um, And then I think the newest trilogy, the J.J. Abrams, whatever you want to call it, the new trilogy, uh, Kylo Ren was never given from the first movie on the same level of mystery as his grandfather was in the original trilogy. So mm-hmm. he was yeah. always kind of sort of whiny and taking off his mask, and it didn't really matter what he did because he didn't have that aura about him that Darth Vader had or that other you know great Disney villains have. There was no mystery to Kylo Ren. We knew everything about him, and it was just a matter of, is he going to win or is the girl going to win? That's it. Um, and the other example to me, one of the, we were talking about the slashers, one of the all-time greatest movie villains, most mysterious movie villains, was Michael Myers as this walking, hmm. unstoppable evil. And then, of course, if you saw Rob Zombie's movies where he was just a bullied kid who came from a broken home and one day snapped, 
once again, you could argue Halloween's one of the greatest, if not the greatest slasher movie of all time. You could argue Michael Myers is one of the greatest horror movie villains of all time. But if there was a dinner and they were all seated together, he'd be a little bit further down from the head of the table than he used to be. So, just two of the greatest movies villains ever lost their prestige because the mystery behind their backstory was ruined. And I feel like who knows what other villains we could have been robbed of in the past 20 years because their backstory has been ruined like they did. Kylo Ren could have been great. Or General Smoke. uh, I think that was his name. Snoke. Whatever he was from uh, Mm -hmm. The Last Jedi. We never really got a chance to stand out, so we don't know. There was no... Then they just went back to Emperor Palpatine, safe, for the third one. And it just didn't quite work. So, yeah. I don't know. That's my take on that. So, what? Yeah, any other thoughts or examples of where the mystery, the lack of mystery, has seriously hindered a villain? I'm just thinking of, like, somebody like Leatherface. Imagine if you had a movie where you find out like his childhood and like uh, how he went to school and how he was picked yeah, they on. Did by... that. Texas Chainsaw Massacre, the oh, beginning. Oh, I didn't even see that. And I'm sure that, <laughs> I'm sure okay, that ruined it. Not so it. much him getting picked on. Not so, yeah, it wasn't very good, but not so much him getting picked. It wasn't as, as blatant as the, uh, the, the Darth Vader and Michael Myers examples, but he worked at a slaughterhouse, he wasn't treated well, and his boss was really mean to him, and one day he snapped. So it's, uh, it, it, instead of having a trilogy of movies or an entire hour of him as a kid, you get enough where it's, it, it's, it doesn't quite work as well. Yeah, yeah. so Leatherface, to a, le- to a much lesser extent, his mystery has been ruined with many prequels and sequels and reboots and who cares. And the Halloween movies, of course. Rob Zombie kind of ruined, uh, I, I thought he ruined the, the character michael myers a bit it's such an inconsistently flawed series that i yeah and and i i know i hated that movie at first but and i still it's if it wasn't halloween maybe it would be a passable movie but it's uh, just being that it's michael myers yeah it's and i don't hate the star wars trilogy either but it definitely the prequel trilogy but it definitely definitely you know ruined darth vader Mm -hmm. to a certain extent so. And I think that the it's just a lack of uh, ideas. I don't think that's obviously the writer's intention when they try to write a movie like this where it's going into the backstory of a villain. I think it's really just mm-hmm. people are just trying to cash on the same old ideas, recycle them. But as a result, they ruin these great villains. But that's not mm-hmm. the intention. Yeah, I don't think George Lucas meant to ruin his. I think George Lucas, say what you want about the original trilogy, the prequel trilogy versus the newest trilogy. The prequel trilogy was at least a man's singular vision. There was no focus groups. There was no nothing. There was It was one man doing what he wanted, what he thought was best. And if you like it, great. And if you don't, he still made money. So whereas the other ones, you could tell with the time spent in between each movie, it was focus group, focus group, change this, change that, do that. Everyone hated that Asian character in the second movie. So she barely had screen time in the third. Uh, yeah, they that let really the fans, they let the They let the fans dictate the trilogy, which is the last thing George Lucas would have done in either of the original trilogy or the prequel trilogy. Mm-hmm. So... Uh, I mean, I, that just to me was worth it. And it, it makes me really happy that Peter Jackson shot those three Lord of the Rings movies simultaneously when he did. Because no one could mess with him. If people hated stuff about the Two Towers, 
oh well, he already made Return of the King, so he's, that's too bad if you don't like it, because it's it's shot, it's done, it's ready to go. Some so, great villains um, in that, that too, benefit. actually. <laughs> yeah, Christopher Lee and uh, Sauron, that big eye. And yeah, Gollum. So. And Gollum, oh yeah, I, uh, Christopher Lee, I'm upset I didn't mention Christopher Lee, one of the great, you know, uh, villain actors of the 20th century and i mean he, he was acting up until his death uh, at age 93 and of course leave it to scorsese to give him his one non-villain role that i know of at least right uh, when he was uh, the bookstore owner in hugo yeah so but i'm a huge huge christopher lee fan i wrote a whole article about him when he passed away on my website on panandslam.com so yeah the, all those horror, horror horror films i mean if it's not bella lugosi as dracula you're talking christopher lee so iconic yeah so yeah, what, so who would you say is your personal favorite movie villain? My personal favorite movie villain, and this might surprise you and it might not, it is a villain that I think I he's, he's kind of a surprising villain, scary, but more in like a creepy way, not oh my god scary, like Michael Myers or Dracula or something, or mega maniacal like a Bond villain. Uh, it would be what he symbolizes is I think what's what uh, this villain uh, scares me the most and gets to me. Uh, Hal from mm. 2001 A Space Odyssey. That's a computer. great example. It's not a man. It's a computer. It's just that red light and it's so haunting and unforgettable and what it really represents about technology and our reliance on technology and how technology could be our downfall. I mean... You could say Terminator did that, The Matrix has done that. A lot of movies have taken that same theme and turned villains out of it as well. But to me, Hal, it's still, 2001 is still one of the best science fiction movies that did more for my imagination than almost any other film. And I would say it all comes back to Hal. When I was a child, I would have said Darth Vader. But as I've gotten older, I think what Hal represents, what he symbolizes, makes him the ultimate movie villain and ultimate villain for humanity a symbol of what we should fear so that's great yeah that's a great example um what's your ultimate you know greatest most memorable movie villain of all time you know i feel like i feel like it's got to be darth vader um mm -hmm. you know obviously before <laughs> before what's happened to him but i just think he's mm -hmm. He was so interesting, especially in A New Hope, where he just comes mm -hmm. out. You don't know, like, like why is he breathing like that? And, like, yeah. why is he – how is he able to, like, strangle people with without touching them? And, how you know, there were all these questions. Yeah. And, you know, if that were a modern – And it didn't matter. We just loved it. We accepted yeah. it. We accepted the mystery. Yeah. If that were a modern movie, I feel like they would have explained all of that in the first ten minutes and they would have just totally ruined We got it. that as a modern movie with Kylo Ren. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, I, I just think he's the ultimate. I mean, you could also, of course, I think we didn't even mention this, but Jaw, you know, the shark, shark in Jaws. Mm, um, there you go, another mysterious Super villain. mysterious, yeah. like why is he doing, well, I guess he's doing because he wants to eat, but <laughs> it seems like he he's <laughs> wants like some kind of revenge. I don't know. It seems like he like, actually has a mind. He wants human meat. Yeah. Human meat tastes better than the seafood. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. I mean, and I think it's interesting the ones that we mentioned are the ones where you don't, yeah, you don't really know. I mean, obviously you learn more about Darth Vader as it, as it goes on, as the trilogy goes on, mm -hmm. but I still don't think they really reveal that much about him. You know, how we, you know, you still don't know how. Not in the original him. trilogy. Exactly. Yeah. 
Um, the prequels, yes. The original trilogy, no. By the if you're judging him just by you know after Return of the Jedi, he's still oh my god, unbelievable, iconic. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and just from like you said, I'm glad you mentioned his introduction. I think that's one of the greatest intros to any villain or any character. You see all the white, you know, on the ship around him, the smoke, and then he emerges. That black cape, that helmet, that mask. It's it's like nothing we had ever seen before. And the John Williams music accompanying it, and the breathing. It, we just accepted it. We were just like, like that is like the Disney villains. That's the bad guy. Yeah. You know that's the bad guy. Let's see where what happens in the next two hours because this guy is is something. And, uh, yeah, he, he until the prequels, they never really let us down. So, yeah, there's another. Darth Vader would have been up there for me. But so we both picked villains from sci-fi movies. Mm-hmm. We both picked villains from two of the most classic sci-fi movies ever made. So, uh, yeah. So, yeah, I guess. Sci-fi's got to up their game a little bit. Yeah. I guess that's that's pretty much it. I hope you guys enjoyed that. I, I mean, I think that we kind of proved our point. Um, you know, I'm sure there's modern villains that we didn't think of. There, I mean, there are some great modern villains, but we could just go on and on about the. Well, you named a couple. You named Hans Landa from mm-hmm. uh, Inglorious Bastards and uh, the Joker, of course. I can't think of anyone since then. What about? To be um, honest. I don't remember his name. I think his name's Anton in No Country for Old Men. I think. Um, yes, Anton Sugar or whoever. Yeah, yeah that's a, and that's a, that's 2007. Yeah. So we're still going back. We're going back. That's that's more than 10 years old. Uh, each example that we've given. So I mean, I would say Ben Kingsley from Sexy Beast would be way up there for me. That's you know his Don Logan character to me was a few steps below Frank Booth. That's like Frank Booth's younger cousin. Mm-hmm. Uh, so for me, uh, the love story parallel with Sexy Beast and uh, Blue Velvet, to me, that stands out. And that was 2001, so that was a long time ago. Same year as Denzel yeah. in uh, Training Day. So I guess, yeah, I guess none of these are, are super modern. <laughs> I mean, the most no. modern one I could think of is is Thanos, which yeah, I know you. I like him more than you, but I wouldn't say he's great. I would say he's better than most of the other Marvel Cinematic Universe villains. Um, but he's not like, oh my god, amazing. <laughs> so, and I say, yeah, and I say Thanos is grimace on steroids with testicles where his chin should be. Yep, that's what I see when I see Thanos. But I'm in the minority. Everyone else loved Infinity War and Endgame and whatever, and that's fine. I'm glad they enjoyed it more than I did. Um, I wish I enjoyed it more, but. Uh, yeah, if that's if that's the best villain from the past ten years, that's that's really unfortunate. I think so. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, hopefully well, it, we figured out what happened. They took away the mystery, Patrick. That's that's yeah. <laughs> that's that's pretty they much. They took what away it the is. mystery, and they don't want to offend other people. <laughs> yeah. So. so yeah, Alrighty. well, hopefully, uh, hopefully, movies get better. Kind of ending it on a downer, hopefully. but <laughs> hopefully yeah. movies get back to the way they should be. No, it's not a downer because the movies that we mentioned with the great villains, they're here and they are forever. True. You can always go back and watch the great Christopher Walken movies, Christopher Lee, um, Dennis Hopper. You can always go back and all the movies we mentioned are available for streaming somewhere. Uh, they're available on Blu-ray or DVD, so if you really want to see them, if we reminded you of a great movie that you forgot about, and you're like, oh my god, I need to go see that, 
I, I that we helped. Okay, that's good. So we're ending on a positive note there because these movies they are here. They're here forever, and they can be enjoyed forever. So yeah, well, movies that's a, are in a better. That's a better way to put it. Yeah. <laughs> We've got great we've got great villains that we can cherish and we have been cherishing for years. So All right. Well, yeah. Well, I hope you guys enjoyed listening and uh yeah, definitely that's a big backlog of villains right there for you if you haven't seen mm-hmm. any of those. Yep. I hope you found it enlightening and I guess we'll sign off. I'm Jason Konigsberg from panandslam.com. You can check out all all my reviews and podcasts there. panandslam.com. Live long, prosper and watch movies. And I'm Patrick Alaka. Uh, Till next time, see ya.